Welcome to my Teacher Friends Podcast. My name is John Peschel, and as I enter my 21st year of teaching, I wanted to create a podcast to share stories, teaching tips, and inspiration. Each week, I'll be joined by one of my smart, talented, passionate teacher friends for a conversation about all things education. Join us, because there's no job as challenging or as rewarding as being a teacher. Today, I am joined by my good friend, Eleanor, who's an elementary general music teacher and a fifth grade orchestra teacher. So let's get started with a little bit about you. Can you share a little bit about your educational history, where you went to school, and what other professional experiences you've had that have led to where you are today? Thank you for letting me be on here, first of all. Um, I've had quite a journey, and I didn't expect to be where I am today. This really all started in second grade. In second grade, I was standing watching my hometown's Halloween parade, and I love that time of year. And I noticed it when the marching band walked by, and I go, I need to be there. And my determination for being in music started that day. A year later, I started piano lessons, and then I started being in my church's little kid choir. And I started in the kid choir because I wanted to sing with my grandma, who was in the grown-up choir in church. And I asked my dad, well, how do I get there? And he says, well, you got to start at the little kid choir, and you got to work your way up. Okay. I remember also my first day of piano lessons where I was nervous because, well, what if I can't read the music and look at my hands at the same time? Mm -hmm. And my dad said, well... You'll just have to get good at it. You'll have yeah. to practice and practice, and you'll be fine, which, thankfully, I now am. Yeah. So I started in band in fifth grade, and when we were given the sign-up sheets in fourth grade to choose which instrument we wanted, well, I had all these different options. And I said, I was going to play clarinet because my, my parents play clarinet. So I circled, you know, clarinet. And I circled flute because, well, that looked pretty. But French horn, what in the world is that? And at that point, I was becoming a Francophile, where I just loved everything French. I'm like, French horn? French? Done it. So I circled it, <laughs> and I labeled one by there. Yeah. That was my top choice. Okay. I was given that top choice. So I walked in right before fifth grade started, and my band teacher opened up the case. Oh, that's what that is? All right. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I played French horn, and that was my band instrument. So I played piano and French horn. Um, and so starting at fifth grade. Starting at fifth grade. Okay. Yep, yep. So I grew up in a, a suburb of St. Paul, Minnesota. Okay. Um, and at that school district, in that very school, I had two miserable music teachers that I did not learn anything from. My elementary teacher, elementary music teacher, just showed the Disney sing-alongs every day for six years. You start memorizing it, except for the rare occasion where she would have the rhythm sticks for a week, or maybe we learned some patriotic song. My band teacher uh, back in elementary school was actually an orchestra teacher teaching band. And she did not know very, very much at all. And she she just taught me all the wrong things. And looking at hindsight, wow. I was amazed that she taught me what she did. Mm. But uh, we got into to seventh grade, and you had to choose to be in band, choir, or general music. And I said, well, I'll sign up and stick with band. 
And I did. And luckily, I stayed. I just stayed through band all the way up to ninth grade. Then I was purposely going to fail band in 10th grade because all the upper kids did not like the new band teacher. And so I did not prepare for my audition. I did not do anything. Uh, and so I had my audition, got through the first measure. He stopped me. He's like, no, we're going to work on this now. Because I'm a horn player, I was put in the top band because he needed a horn player. Okay. So how did that change your trajectory? Because at this point, um, you, I'm hearing a love of music, right. but not necessarily of teachers of music, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, fortunately, my junior high band teacher was amazing, um, and I still keep in touch with her thanks to Facebook. Uh, and then also, at the same time, I decided, I realized that my voice was really developing nicely, so I started taking voice lessons. And I fell in love with performance. And it was through those voice lessons that gave me the confidence that I needed. Because I was the quiet kid, and I could still go back to being that quiet kid. Um, but it was when I was taking the voice lessons that gave me my shine. I finally got out on stage, and I felt confident. So it was these extracurricular opportunities that made me fall in love with music even more. My piano lessons were really taking off. Voice lessons were taking off. And then when I got to 10th grade, oh, then I could finally be in marching band. And I could finally be in that top choir. Oh, okay. I was just so excited. So I've made it all this way. And then I kind of not only, you know, joined band in 10th grade, I became the teacher's pet. I became the music librarian. In 12th grade, I became the drum majorette. I was rocking it. Yeah. So then I decided, you know, I had to choose because it's getting to be time to apply for colleges. And I had a hard time choosing between... French education and music education. And I remember this conversation my mom had with me when she was driving me home from voice lessons one Saturday. And she, I was telling her, I don't know what to do. And she said, you know what you have to do? You got to be with music because music is in your heart. Like, mm. done. So ever since, I've had music in my heart. And she pointed that out. Yeah. Um, so to speed it on up, got to, gra to college. And I was two years into my program, and then I fell in love with music history. I'm the black sheep of the family, where everybody else in my family are all historians. Except for me. I went music. Um, and with that, I took this class that we all had to take music history. And the, I was working really close with the professor. And then after I was finished with his classes, he invited me to come back and to, to teach a class every semester to start building that up. Because by gum, I was going to be a music history professor. So I graduated from undergraduate school, started applying for all these jobs. And this was in 2009. December 2009, we're starting to get into Act 10. Mm. And Wisconsin was not looking pretty at all for jobs. And so I was applying for teacher jobs everywhere. I didn't get any. Okay. So I was applying for graduate schools all of 2010. I didn't get into any. So 2011, I finally got in. I finally got in. I was doing long-term subbing for bands. Um, and then I also uh, applied to UW-Milwaukee, where I not only earned one master's degree, but I earned two master's degrees. So I have a master's in library and information science, and I have a master's in music history and literature focusing on Minnesota radio history. So I went moved to Milwaukee in 2011, and from there... I fell in love with radio. 
through my thesis work. So you know what I was going to do? I was going to be a music history professor on a public radio station. So I started working through that, working through that, working through that. I got on the air on Milwaukee Public Radio for two and a half years. And it gave me that wonderful experience just interviewing all these musicians, creating content. It was terrific. And then I couldn't get a job. Again, so here I am. I keep graduating from all these universities and I still can't get a job. Yeah. So... Being disgruntled and being engaged and trying to figure out my life, I decided, you know what? I'm going to start my own business. And so I became a genealogist. I started my own genealogy business, which is another 15-minute tangent, which I will not get into. <laughs> okay. But I decided if nobody's going to hire me, I'll hire me. Well, then it turns out that this current school district was going to hire me. Uh, they wanted me to be the orchestra teacher and having all my band experience and one semester of string tech, which is string techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, I went into this interview and I had a nice chat with the, with the principal and he's a trombonist and we were trading things back and forth, uh, including jabs about what, you know, UW Eau Claire's blue golds are. We still don't know. <laughs> Um, but with him, he always brings up this interview in that he's knew it was just a conversation, but he was so happy that I was so open and honest about my background. He was just thrilled that I was willing to work hard to learn what I need to teach in order to be successful. And I'm there. This is my third year. And I've developed these wonderful relationships with the teachers, with the principal, with the families, with the students. It's been terrific. And, uh, so I've had quite a journey in my 30 years so far. Yeah, that is a journey, <laughs> right? Really starting with band, and now you're not teaching band. Where, not. where do you think the future, um, uh, what, what does the future entail for you? Do you? <laughs> I would love to know. Yeah. I'll get our magic ball out here. Yeah. Uh, so what it entails, well, um, with our school district, we are changing quite a bit next year, mm-hmm. so a lot of turnover with new teachers and retiring teachers and flexing, flexing with the numbers. Um, so I could be general music. I can do more orchestra. Maybe in the future I'll look for that band job, but we'll find out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's, uh, that's quite a unique journey to get you to where you are today. I think about you teaching first year students in orchestra (laughs) is something that you're relatively, uh, you have grown to be an expert, but when you started, you were a little bit newer uh, with as well, with just having a few methods classes. So what was that like your first year of teaching orchestra to brand new orchestra students? It was, I, I think it gave me a unique perspective because my string experience, even though I was in college orchestra for two years playing in the wind section, um, I had one semester of string techniques. And with that, we learned one instrument throughout those entire, that entire semester. That was it. And so I had my grandma's violin at home, and I started practicing, reading through the book. And my goal that first year was to stay two weeks ahead of these students. Um, I was working with the other elementary orchestra teacher in the district who was telling me, okay, this is what you need to do. These are the kind of the different goalposts. Um, but it gave me that perspective of, I know what it's like, the excitement of learning that new instrument, um, but also where their mindset is at. And sure, I have many more years experience knowing what middle C looks like and how to finger things and understanding the science of it. Um, but I think overall, 
I think it was pretty good. And I think it gives me a, a new perspective as opposed to my co- orchestra colleagues where they've been playing it for 20 plus years. They forgot what it's like to be brand new. Mm-hmm. And you have that perspective, right, mm-hmm. of being brand new and um, understanding the the journey of growing in an instrument, right? So you mm-hmm. talked about a, co- a co-worker that kind of helped you stay on pace what are some other things that you did to push yourself in your performance and teaching of strengths instrument? Uh-huh. Um, I was, uh, that first year though, I was just really riveted into that book. Like I have to do everything by the book. And then I was realizing that there's more out there and there are better techniques to teaching these, in, these things than just sticking with this, this true essential elements, 2000 book that every kid has had, even in band. Um, so then I started looking at the different games that the upper, uh, sorry, the lower middle school teachers were teaching. Um, we had something called music mentors, uh, where the seventh through 12th graders in orchestra will teach the fifth graders. So I was actually learning from these, these other students, how to teach and watching the other orchestra teachers help prepare these instruments and what their posture should be like. Um, so just gathering other resources through conventions through other teachers and then just started to explore but my goal is was this entire time to be the teacher's teacher that i did not have when i was growing up right. so what what i would have liked in fifth grade yeah yeah well that's wonderful thank you for sharing that we're going to move on to our next section okay. we're going to play a little game if you're up for it <laughs> okay so i know that you've listened to the podcast before yes. um, we are going to do 60 seconds where we will uh give you time to answer as many questions as possible okay. so you can go really fast and rapid fire or you can elaborate that's totally up to you mm-hmm. but whatever we get done in 60 seconds is what we're supposed to get done all right Sound good all yes. right so i will get my timer ready all right, here we go. Favorite month of the school year? April. Favorite professional development conference? Ooh, WMEA. Favorite kindergarten music song? Mother Gooniebird. Favorite piece to teach fifth grade orchestra students? Mm, oh, to joy. Favorite thing to do in the summer that you don't get to do during the school year? Crafting. Uh, school lunch. Always, sometimes, or never? Never. Teacher's lounge. Always, sometimes, or never? Always. Going into school on the weekends. Always, sometimes, never? Rarely. Rarely. All right, staff get-togethers. Always, sometimes, never? Always. First name of a student that has had a huge impact on you? I have to go with last name because that's what I do, and it's Kramer. All right, and first name of a colleague or last name, that has had a positive influence on you. Al. All right, and we are up. That's one minute. You passed your 60-second timed test. <laughs> All right. Good for you. Um, we're going to now move into a time where we share some teacher tips. So this is where um, you will have a chance to share something that has worked for you in your classroom environment. So what is one teaching tip? Uh, that has worked for you in your classroom environment that you'd like to share with our listeners? Allow the kids to make a mistake. I think that there's just so much pressure in today's world. Um, we're just, it's just very competitive. You need to make sure that you have to be the best of the best of the best. And that pressure 
especially in music in an extracurricular can be really deterring from for students and if you allow them to make that mistake and to realize that it's okay to make that mistake then they're going to feel so much better and that's going to encourage them to practice more and more and more mm. so that's why i think that i my rapport with the students really comes from besides making connections is to allow them to make that mistake yeah so can you give us can you think of a story a time when that really to help illustrate that point right so a time when um you allowed a student to make a mistake or that you made a mistake and you allowed them to see that and how that helped the community the classroom and learning grow from there okay i just think of all these different uh, things and there's nothing very monumental, but uh, just the other. No, well, let's see. No, scratch that. We're gonna go back to my first year at this particular school. Yeah, and I had this really, really, like, really uh, fantastic violinist who was a perfectionist. And with her, she just she couldn't do anything wrong, and she was just so tightly wound, uh, high strung, but um, psh, who uh, really very just, good. That was thank nice. You, thank yes. you. Um, who. Uh, wanted to earn this ribbon that we do a ribbon testing for for all these different songs and she did not want to get that ribbon until she got it absolutely right and I realized there was just so many pressures on this particular student and probably across all these other students that I'm not even seeing it's not as visible and so just um, whenever we have an accident I go take two and you know try to do the movie shutter thing um, and I think with that it's really kind of lightened up the mood and just reassuring, you know, Grace, it's okay. We can move on. It's okay. You know, and ask them, and I've done this now. Okay, they, this was great, except for one thing. What did you mess up on? And they'll say, I forgot that rest. Good. As long as you know where you made your mistake, we can move on. Mm. So just, you know, making sure that this mistake isn't this big, horrible, scary thing. Right. Acknowledge it, move on from it, and keep going forward mm -hmm. is kind of what I'm hearing you say. And right. I think... That process is something that teachers pre-K-12 or even beyond can uh, really connect with, regardless of their content area. Right. And I think they need to lighten up on their students because they have to realize how many pressures are on us teachers, too. So we have all these pressures on us, and I think it conveys or goes it's transferred to those students. Like, you have to make sure that you're getting these things right. So yeah. just lightening up the mood is helpful for everybody. That's great. The The tip that I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, today, and I'd love you, for you to weigh in on as well, is I often hear teachers talk about how they know their students, mm -hmm. right? I know my students. I know where they're at. Um, and they collect that data in a lot of different ways, whether it is performance assessments, whether it's uh, formal or informal assessments, formative assessments or summative assessments. There's a lot of ways that they collect data um, and what they know about students. But I, I often feel like sometimes we hold a lot of that information in our heads and don't transfer that down onto paper. Um, and maybe that was more of a me problem mm -hmm. than a we as, as I talk about teachers. But I really struggled sometimes finding opportunities to write down some of those things that I learned about students, whether it had to do about them as people or them as learners. And I found that when I took a little bit of time right at the start of my lunch, right at the end of the day, 
to really take some time to write down what I'm learning about my students, that my understanding of them grew just by those short little reflections. I, again, felt like I always knew my students, right? I could be one of those teachers that say, I know where they're at. Mm -hmm. But by taking the time to write some of those things down and focusing not just on them in one area as a learner, but them as a person really helped me um, differentiate and connect with kids. I totally agree. Um, for me, when you're, you're pointing out that just not writing it down is in your head, that is such a slippery slope for me, especially at the beginning of the year, because you were a classroom teacher. Mm -hmm. And so you saw these kids eight hours a day. You saw them frequently every day. For me, I see them once a week for 20 minutes. I'm not going to learn all their names until at least November. So it's hard for me to figure out, wait, um, uh, I think they're uh, this person who wore this did this wrong or this one right. <laughs> right you know, so right. I have a hard time. And so I keep it up in my head. But then once I start learning their names, then I do notice it. Mm -hmm. um, but it is super important to start writing things down. And I have fully intended to write down how every lesson went. But it's just we also have a lot of – we have to go, go, go. So yeah. there's a lot of quick turnover. So I wish I did take more time to write things down yeah. because the worst thing you can say is, I'm going to remember that. Right. You know, <laughs> you do not. Right. So those are our teaching tips. Um, I hope you think about trying and incorporating those into your learning environment. And now it's time for a commercial break. Did you know that Rodan and Fields is the number one skincare brand in the U.S.? With four regimens, there is a solution for every skincare need. Each regimen provides your skin with the right ingredients, in the right amount, in the right order, and lasts more than 60 days. Preferred customers save 10% and receive free shipping and handling. With a 60-day money-back guarantee, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Everyone can have better skin. And it starts with reaching out. I can be found on Facebook at John Peschel. That's J-O-H-N-P-E-S-C-H-L. Or by email at myteacherfriendspodcast at gmail.com. Mention this podcast, My Teacher Friends, when you contact me and receive a special gift just for starting the conversation. Rodan and Fields, life-changing skincare. Hi, this is Connor. Here are some jokes for all the teachers out there. What is a math teacher's favorite sum? Summer! Why did the Eminem go to school? Because he really wanted to be a smarty. Why is six afraid of seven? Because seven, eight, nine. <laughs> and now, back to the podcast. My teacher friends. Well, they're not my teacher friends, but that's the name of the show. Welcome back. Now is your chance, Eleanor, to talk about something that's in your mind and in your heart when it comes to education. So what would you like to talk about next? I would like to talk about the effectiveness of PBIS. Okay. It's a policy held by a lot of school districts. And what it is is to focus on the positive behaviors of students instead of having the negatives. So it's like four or five positives for every negative thing you say. 
Okay. And we've talked about that similar uh, concept on the podcast before, right? Right. Yep, yep. So with that, um, I, I think that it's not used correctly or it could be used better by certain teachers or in certain schools. Um, I guess, you know, and I have to realize it and not everybody's like me. Growing up, I was the good kid. You followed all the rules and I had to have, you know, borderline panic attacks if I forgot my homework at school, if I left my instrument at school. I would just really, really freak out because, well, I was supposed to do this and now I really messed up. And, uh, you were is, a rule follower. I was. And, and that really affected how you felt, right? right? You felt guilty when you weren't able to do that. And just, again, so allowing for those mistakes allowed, mm-hmm. you know, let it be okay to make that mistake. Um, and I realized that that was 20, 30 years ago and here we are now as a different society. Um, but I think that... You know, if I were to be given awards for doing what I should have, it wouldn't have been as effective for me as maybe it is for today's kids. Um, So just skipping up ahead to student teaching, we didn't have PBIS when when I was student teaching in a small town in Wisconsin. Uh, We had something called Responsive Classroom. And with responsive classroom, you're greeting the kids at the door by first name. You're making those connections. And that really spoke to me because I that forced me to learn all the names. But also, it's building that connection and that respect. And um, I think that really carries out really, really far. In my current school district, um, with PBIS, each school has their own thing. And they are given, if a student is doing exceptionally well behavior, doing what they should be, um, they'll be given little slips. And the slips will then be turned into the office. And then, you know, it just accumulates, accumulates. Because if you do this, then you do that, and you do this, and that, and you have a big chance of getting this. And oh, oh, it's just so complicated. Um, and for me, being the teacher, I am not one to easily give those out. Okay. Like, you have to really earn it. And that was instilled by my, my mom, really. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. Um, but with her, she was one of these moms who was like, you know, I was so excited that I did this thing. Okay, so, okay, so it took you had to, I had to work really hard in order to for her to say good job, awesome, way to go, proud of you. Like, you mm-hmm. know, she is proud of me for whatever I am or whatever mm-hmm. I do, but she actually has to. You have to do something absolutely spectacular in order to get that verbal acknowledgement. And for me, that meant so much more than getting some little token that I forgot about a year from now. You know, right. um, so you're really focusing less on the thing, right. the object that you're getting, mm-hmm. um, and more on the connection. Right. So carrying that into my classroom, the kindergartners are still learning what these little slips of paper are. Um, it gets to be Christmas time, winter time. They're going to start noticing, oh, well, don't I get a, the slip for doing this? Don't mm-hmm. I get a slip for doing that? I, you know, aren't you going to give me the slip today? Like, no. Um, and I've caught myself a couple of times if we're supposed to be sitting there watching a movie. Okay, well, if we're all paying attention, then I'll give you a slip. You know, and so then I think teachers use that, go that route more than they really should be. In that just, you know, handing out, kind of bribing. Okay, well, if you're good, I'm going to give you this. So for you, handing out those slips is feeling like a bribe or a reward instead of an acknowledgement. Right. Right? So instead of just acknowledging positive behaviors, you talked about 
the four to one or five to one ratio where you're acknowledging uh, behaviors, it's feeling more like a reward and something that you that um, you're conditioning kids to behave well because of the slips. Right. Am I capturing that yeah. right? And so what happens when all these kids become adults? That's what I kind of wonder. If they're if they, if we're setting them up for that mindset, then they get into the workforce. Well, what do I get? Why should I go above and beyond? Mm-hmm. You know. But with my orchestra, I start doing that at the beginning. And here's what I do. I teach orchestra in this big room, multi-tiers. I'm the one carrying the chairs up and down, which I did Tuesday for the first time. 52 (laughs) chairs, let me tell you. So I I start setting up, and the kids start coming in. And they're like, hey, what can we do? Can you help me set up chairs? Yeah! And they get so excited and start setting up and starting to have ownership. But at the beginning of the year, I, I fill out the slips and I give them each. Okay, well, thank you to this person and that person and this person for setting it up. So I'll give out the slips in front of the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Then after a while, I notice that the slips are just left behind. They don't mm. care. And I, you know, at the end of the year, I'm cleaning out their case and there's that whole stack of them right there. So over the course of the time, or maybe it's because they're fifth grade and they don't need that, but they have more appreciation for taking ownership, for the acknowledgement that I'm saying thank you for being awesome, for doing all these things instead of having this little piece of paper that can be put into a drawing that could maybe give them a chance to do this and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I think just creating those connections, acknowledging who they are and acknowledging their efforts goes a lot farther than a little piece of paper. Yeah, you talked about a strategy that you did in student teaching, right? Um, uh, with greeting kids at the door. Um, do you have any other strategies that others could apply that you really have found helpful in um, acknowledging uh, positive behavior or just getting to know or connecting with kids that you talked about, which is so important for learning? For me, I think that it is important to be visible. And during conference time, and I know that my other special colleagues do not do this, um, they I have reached out to parents, hi, this is what we're doing in music. This is what we're doing in orchestra. Come on by. Just being visible and inviting, I think that helps at home to, to encourage that. Um, and then just being visible to the students. My office, of course, is located in between two lunch tables. So if I want to go in and out, all the kids will see me. And I'm, I'm doing recess duty. All the kids want to play. And it's not being scary, not expecting you know high, high, high expectations, allowing for mistakes to happen, allowing to be having yourself be silly, mm-hmm. um, giving them creative control, and giving them um, a little more... Uh, ownership of of our classroom yeah i think those are awesome tips that have helped me with my classroom management now are they sitting there nicely you know with their feet flat on the floor ready to learn no but i that would be a scary classroom to me i wish that it would be more inviting i'm trying to i'm working on trying to find that halfway point of you know Figuring out when it's okay to be silly, when it's it's important to be serious. So we're working on that with kindergarten, but with fifth grade, they're starting to get ready for that next level. And with them, just having going, you know, having nicknames for them, 
um, that they create for themselves or we have an inside story. Um, I think that really helps. And just having a, you know, giving them more ownership, right. I think that really helps. Well, thanks for sharing that. I do think that connections are so vital. Some people that may be listening to this um, may be required by their school to do PBIS. Mm -hmm. um, but I think some of the tips that you gave today are things that you can incorporate um, into your teaching to help um, help foster that connection between you and students and help them grow and learn more. So I appreciate you sharing those ideas. Before we wrap up, I have two final questions. Okay. So I'll share both of them with you and then give you a chance to respond to each one. Okay. So the first question is, what advice do you have for someone entering their first years of teaching? And the other side of that is, what advice do you have for someone entering their last years of teaching? For the beginning teachers, uh, my advice to you would be to think outside the book. And I think that first year, we're all just so reliant on those textbooks because all the lesson, lesson plans are all written out. You have the sequential order. Everything is just fine. But then start going to different conventions. Start looking and learning from these other expert teachers or experienced teachers and seeing how you can apply those techniques to the book. Because there's so many techniques and so many lessons out there that it's impossible to fit it all into one book. Um, and just so going to conventions, learning from other teachers, looking at other books. I'm starting to pull in different um, lesson books and the etudes from those books so I can uh, create my own packet, which is I have, what I've done for orchestra. I create an orchestra packet every week. So I'm pulling in different etudes. I'm pulling in different tips and things like that. So just kind of I created my own textbook to supplement the, the required textbook in the district. Okay. Okay. And for those uh, teachers who are maybe entering their last few years of teaching. Be open to new ideas. Uh, that is from experience, especially in my current school district. Um, I have this terrific, amazing, almost a second mother slash best friend slash just really fantastic colleague who I work with at my, my school. Um, and she's helped me through all these different Things helped me talk through the lesson plan, helping me with new ideas and uh, just teaching me how to do certain things. When I ask her, how, can you, how do I do this? She will show me how to do that. But the nice thing is that she will then go ahead and listen to my ideas. She's not shooting my ideas down because, oh, well, I'm a new person. I don't really know what I'm doing because it turns out I actually do know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so just, you know, you're never too old to be collecting new ideas. And I think that a lot of older experienced teachers are so stuck in their ways that if I were to come in and do whatever, they're going to shot that, you know, just completely shoot that down. And as a colleague in the district will say, you can either do it the the right way or the wrong way. Mm. Harsh words. Yep. Harsh words. Exactly. And, and with that person's spin on it, it seems like it's either their way or you're doing it wrong. And so the idea of being a continuous learner mm -hmm. and being reflective and being welcoming of new people is important to you. Right. Well, uh, those... Sounds like great advice. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being my guest today. This has been great to get a chance to talk with you um, on this podcast. We get a chance 
to visit and connect in different ways, but this um, is special and unique. So thank you. Yeah, well, and thank you. And thank you for creating this podcast because this has been so much fun listening to the experiences of other teachers too. And I hope I'm, I'm excited to listen to more of your friends. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of My Teacher Friends. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast. Send me an email at myteacherfriendspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like the show on Facebook at My Teacher Friends Podcast. Please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes. Until next time, remember, celebrate and nurture every child every day. <laughs>